Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome the Mark Groves podcast. You know, when I think of us being in relationship with other people or just being in the world, I often think about how little all of me has been in the world. You know, that my authentic, fully expressed who I actually am, what I'm actually feeling, bringing that to the relationship, sharing all of that, allowing my partner the same space to do the same. Because when I'm not doing it, I'm not going to be comfortable with them doing it. Because I won't know how to hold that authenticity, that truth. And so when I look at my own experience of that, that, you know, probably m more of my authentic self was in relationship till I was like 17, 18, got really hurt, and then kind of kept him alive for a bit, got really hurt at 19, and then really dialed it back and, and became who I needed to be even more so to be liked, to be loved, to receive admiration, to get whatever, you know, it was that made me feel safe in, re in relationship and protected me from really deeper intimacy. But ultimately, I was protecting myself from deeper hurt because when we love and we're hurt in that experience of love, instead of getting to know why we got hurt and where and what are the skills we need to develop in order to not be, to not experience the same relational breakdown, if we want to call it that, we, instead of doing that, we actually associate the depth of love and feeling with the pain. So if I touch that depth of love and feeling, then I'm going to get hurt. So I just won't touch that depth of love and feeling. I'll, I'll maintain control around it. And we don't even consciously do this. This is occurring unconsciously. And so two people in relationship generally have these two unconscious actions going on. And it shows up as the same fights, the same self-sabotage, the same self-abandonment, the same uh, not being able to understand how to communicate effectively. Like 
you know, we might even have sabotaged our relationships as kids, as teenagers, as whatever, in order to not experience depth. So I'm so excited for today's episode because we're going to be talking a bit about those dynamics of what shows up and how do we get past those impasses. The guest today is Dr. Alexandra Salman, who is one of the most brilliant relationship teachers in the world. She's incredible. And I'm so excited that we've teamed up. She's going to be running a book club for her book, Loving Bravely. We're going to talk about that book, but we're going to talk more so about relational dynamics and self-abandonment, self-sabotage and communication patterns. And how do we get past these impasses? You know, we talk about when one partner wants to work on it and another doesn't. And so if you want to sign up for the book club, what a great way to spend some summertime. Go to createthelove.com slash loving bravely and sign up now. It's going to be an incredible time. Also saving you $50 by using the coupon code podcast bravely. Before we get started, wherever you listen to this, please subscribe to the podcast. Please give it a written review and a five-star review. That's so helpful. And this podcast episode is going to be expansive. I know because the conversation was so expansive for me. So stay till the end because it's incredible. Without further ado, here is Dr. Alexandra Salman. Well, my good friend, Dr. Alexandra Salman needs probably no introduction since this is your fourth time coming on here. I feel like you know when there's a news show and they have a correspondent who they always bring in for a subject? I feel like you're that for me. I'm like, coming in from Chicago, Illinois, Dr. Alexandra Solman. Welcome, Dr. Solman. We've got some gorgeous weather here and traffic <laughs> is flowing just fine today. <laughs> well, we're talk I about love, love it. So thank you. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm so glad to be back. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is a subject, obviously, that's not only near and dear to our hearts and the people listening to the to the podcast, but you know, the you're, you're an author of two books of loving bravely as well as taking sexy back, and taking sexy back is all about that journey into sex, sexuality. I love that book. It's a brilliant way for and anyone listening, if you're like, I want to just discover more. I know it's written for women. I read it as a man. There is an actual chapter for your partner in it, which is great. I read it as a man and I loved it. I learned so much. So that book, mind-blowing and could be, I was going to say orgasmically blowing too, but that was really the wrong statement. There's many HR departments who would not agree with with what I just said. (laughs) In the book, Loving Bravely, really, how would you describe the content in that book? Yeah, Loving Bravely is a big, wide, comprehensive journey into self. You know, it is about the self in love. Like my favorite, favorite place to work is right at the intersection of what's happening within me and what's happening between us. And I mm-hmm. and I feel like in order to help people grow relational and sexual self-awareness, which is the heart of what I do, what we do every day, we need to be able to move and like switch our lens, right? At some points, I'm looking inside of me, my past, my gender role socialization, my cultural conditioning. And sometimes I'm 
standing right next to you and we're looking together at the problem. And sometimes I'm holding space so that we can look at what's happening inside of you. And we need to have that cognitive and emotional flexibility to shift our attention from the within to the between and back again. And so that's what Loving Bravely is. It's a training program for kind of learning those relational, like growing those relational self-awareness muscles, because without that, we get so at risk of being stuck in blame or in shame, right? Like those are the stuff. Blame being other, shame being self, and then not able to actually dance in that space between because we're too busy not being in our own experience. Is that, is that what you mean? That's right. Yeah. And if we're stuck in a blame game, which my gosh, it's so easy, right? Because when we get stuck in that blame game, yeah, but if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done this. Yeah, but if I hadn't done, if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done this. Like we can go round and round and round in that finger pointing space. And it's so easy to, you know, even couples, research has found that even couples that are happy together can can get stuck there sometimes. And we have to have ways of of noticing that pattern, pausing, and shifting because that it's in the shift that then we move back into vulnerability, right? Of like, here's what's coming up inside of me. Let me share with you some data that's coming up inside of me. And that's intimacy, right? Is being able to say, okay, I think there's a piece of this that I want to own. I want to take responsibility for. I want to show you. And that's like the most powerful dissolver of that blamey finger pointy dance. So what you're inviting is that if I can explore my own experience, learn where I come from, what has shaped my specific relational journey, how I got here today, and you do the same, and even if you don't do the same, but that I have awareness of yours too, which I don't want to say like, because that makes it sound like, all right, I'm going to learn enough that I can do enough for both of us, which I don't think is fair because I don't know that anyone can learn enough to heal both sides of the story coming together to create a separate story. Do you know what I mean? I do. Well, I think that's where we get into the self-abandonment idea, right? Sometimes, yes, I think that's, you know, the, the thing that I didn't anticipate when Loving Bravely came out into the world is how often I would hear this question. Okay, I'm in, right? Like I will do my relational self-awareness work, but what do I do about the fact that my partner doesn't want to? I mean, that feels like the question everyone has. It's so right. It is. And I think there's a word. I mean, I'm really curious to hear where you go with this because I think you're right. We get this question all of the time. I think that there's a world of difference between being new at naming feelings, putting together pieces, looking at the impact of the past. There's a there's a difference between being new at that and being contemptuous of that. And I think that very often it's, you know, I think especially for those of those of us who've been socialized in the masculine for men and those who've been socialized in masculinity, I think, you know, where we are right now in our cultural evolution, it is very often the love of a partner that starts us on that journey, that starts a man on that journey. So I think it's not at all, I think it's really common that she, if, if it's a she and a he, she may have been listening to your podcast, reading books, doing some therapy before she fell in love with him. And it is, 
his love of her that gets him started on this or gets him willing to do it. But he's he may be a year, three years, five years behind her. So I think there's a difference between being a bit of a newbie and, and being contemptuous of introspection. What do you mean by contemptuous? Just so people understand. Emmy. When you say, can we talk about what happened last night? I roll my eyes. Mm. When you mm. say, you know, I wonder if part of this has to do with your dad's alcoholism. And I say, uh-uh, we're not going there. Or I say, I don't believe in therapy, which I'm always like, it's not, therapy is not the tooth fairy. It's not Santa Claus. It is not for us to believe in or not believe in. (laughs) But that's a contemptuous statement. I don't believe in therapy or therapy is for crazy people, which I, I hold compassion for the fact that based on your family dynamics or your cultural location, like you may have grown up being told therapy is for crazy people. Okay. Yeah. So I hold compassion for that. And I will say it's time to move on from that, right? It's, it's, we don't have to believe everything we were told when we were growing up. So those are a couple of examples of contempt. It's the eye roll. It's the, it's the being closed off to any conversation. And I think sometimes, sometimes that closed off is the first step towards looking at the wound. Mm-hmm. And so then you know, if, if I'm, if I'm the one in our, let's say we're in a relationship and um, I'm showing you a lot of contempt when you ask to unpack something with me, that's a great starting point. What is it from your past, right? You may say, Alexandra, what is it from your past that taught you that talking about feelings is so dangerous? What is it about, you know, and there's all kinds of stories that will break your heart, right? About maybe when I grew up, my mom relied on me. I was her anchor. I was her rock. She downloaded all of her pain into me. And so I grew up with a massive allergy to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we can have compassion for that. You know, you can, I would want you to have compassion for the fact that that's where my wound lies while also holding my feet to the fire and saying, okay, I get it. And right. Like I bet you and I can do it differently. I bet you can hold some space for me without without feeling the way you felt when you were a little girl. Yeah, it brings up so many, there's so many ways we can go with this because this brings up one, if, you know, that contempt of the eye roll or the defensiveness, like you want to talk about that, let's talk about your whatever it is. That inability to turn, to receive something, but that shame that might come up in me that I'm not enough, that I'm not a good communicator, that I can't give you what you need. And maybe those fears are all coming up for me. And, you know, you're speaking from, uh, for men, I completely echo what you're saying in that it is socialized and normal for a woman to consume relational information, emotional intelligence information. And we know from our friend, Harriet Lerner, like she talks about that being due to any subordinate group needing to learn the needs and nuances of a dominant group just to survive, just to like, I, you have to know how to dance in aggression. So potentially the person didn't die, didn't end up harmed. And, and so from a evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that women, and it's more socially acceptable to be reading a book on feelings and things like that, if not encouraged. And for men, our first turn towards introspection is often at the feedback of a partner 
or and or then the loss of a partner that drives us to potentially finally ask like, hey, maybe how I'm doing it isn't working. Like, is there something more here? And I love that you said we might be six months, four years, you know, behind our partner when that request is made. And in a lot of ways, I'd say we might even be however age we are behind, you know, if the initial socialization was emotional communication. I always think like by the time I was having emotional conversations, relational conversations, it was with partners who'd been having those since they were, (laughs) you know, I think of my like earliest relationships, my partners tried to have those with me and I didn't even know they were trying to have those with me, you know, like I was completely missing it. It's like, why I give you what you need. I'm providing, I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. everything's good. Like there's nothing wrong. So things must be good. (laughs) And realizing that just actually getting that feedback or, or a partner making that request to have a conversation about something is an invitation into more depth, into more intimacy. And it is sad that we don't have the tools till we need to find the tools really. For the majority of my adult life, I have been searching for a tasty protein powder. I've been searching for an amazing protein powder, one that doesn't just add protein to my shake, but like adds flavor and creaminess and deliciousness and all those things. And I'm happy to have found that in the Organifi Complete Protein. It's organic, it's vegan, it's also a multivitamin with digestive enzymes, so I kind of like that stack. 20 grams of protein, all in one delicious, easy-to-mix shake. It's got seven superfoods, it's 100% organic, no soy, no whey, and it helps curve cravings. It contains half of the daily recommended value of selenium, vitamin C, D, E, A, and 35% of your daily iron. And all of these vitamins are from whole foods. And so it's got pea protein, quinoa, pumpkin seed, coconut, which contains MCTs, vanilla bean for the vanilla flavor, five different digestive enzymes in every serving. It helps you digest your food, prevent the bloating and the gas, and absorb more of the nutrients that you eat throughout your day. So if you want to save 20% off both chocolate and vanilla, go to Organifi.com slash create the love and Organifi is spelt O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. So go check it out. That's right. Because it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. If you spend time with little boys, it's, it's so clear how big, big, big hearted little boys are, how deeply they feel, how much they will scan a situation and assess who's feeling what and where they fit in the whole dynamic, right? There's not a ton of difference between a little boy and a little girl until we socialize them in those different ways. And you're right. I mean, when when I was in high school, my friend, I had the same, same little, same group of four best girlfriends. We're still to this day, a little crew. And our idea of a fun time on a Friday night was we would make a big pot of pasta, (laughs) pick somebody's house, (laughs) make a big pot of pasta and just sit around and talk about our feelings and dissect our relationships with our boyfriends and our families. And that was what we did. That was how we spent time together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that may be an extreme version (laughs) of it, but that is... There is a, such a way that we socialize boys and girls differently, adolescent boys and adolescent girls differently. And it just comes, it travels right with us into intimacy. And so then, right, for a, 
a heterosexual man to kind of exit the world of boys and the world of men and try to be somebody very different when his partner asks him to be different. Um, it is just learning a new language and learning a new skill set. And I see it. I mean, my gosh, every day in my work as a couples therapist, I see how deeply men anchor their sense of self-worth and okayness on how their partner, especially female partner, is perceiving them and how much they do not want to be a disappointment to the woman that they love. How exquisitely painful it is to feel like she is disappointed in me. And so a lot of that behavior we see, a lot of the defensiveness and the blocking and the eye rolling is a defense against the exquisite amount of pain that he would feel, um, that he feels when he feels her disappointment. I think a lot of women miss that. A lot of women can get really triggered by the eye roll, by the deep exhale, right? Because of course, it's very, very painful to feel like somebody is diminishing you. So, I, I, But I think it's important to hold on to that as a survival strategy, as a, as a means of protecting himself from the pain. And of course, then the work is for him to begin to name the pain because the moment he names his pain, it changes the whole dance. Hmm. I think of how often, I mean, I certainly know men now who have deep relational emotional intelligence, who are the ones inviting their partners to that deeper space. So, you know, shout out to them. I, I know it always sounds like there's, there's not an acknowledgement of that when we have these conversations. So I want to acknowledge that. The other side of it too, is you spoke to being able to be a to feel like you have disappointed or let down your partner. And I've explored this within myself that in order to receive feedback from Kai or from anyone, from you, from anybody, I have to simultaneously hold the space of inadequacy, which I didn't have any capacity for as a younger person and have learned to increase the capacity for um, because where I thought formally it was like me letting them down and there's something wrong with me, I had to really learn that that inadequacy was actually, I think on some level, healthy shame in that I started to rec recognize that the feedback you give me is now opening a larger potential within me of what I'm capable of and how I can show up. Mm. And so now there's been a broadening of what might be expectations or desires for me that I know exist and I can step into. But in doing that, I have to acknowledge that I'm not currently and just wasn't in that potential. So even though I had no awareness maybe previously or no conscious moment of actually holding it, yeah. or sorry, no awareness of being able to hold it, that now when I take this pause and I hear your feedback, I now can breathe into who I can be and also grieve that I haven't been that person at the same time. And then that has been an art in a lot of ways, <laughs> because I think, I think that exists in no matter the human, but I think for men to show that is so, uh, is so in contrast to the definition of masculinity and how they're supposed to show up as a partner with, with no inadequacies, with no chink in the armor that it actually requires me to abandon 
the definition of masculinity that I've been sold and bought into. And now I have to buy out of it to meet my partner. So the thing that has been socialized out of me and conditioned out of me is the very thing I need to access to keep my partner and deepen my relationships. Like that (laughs) is a mind fuck. And a brave journey, no pun intended on loving bravely. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Because I know that was a long thought process. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so it, it it's so beautiful that that you know whenever like right in the space of receiving feedback, two really big things have to happen at once, right? And it, it is like I mean, you're what you're calling healthy shame is this space of holding myself, holding oneself with so much gentleness. And so much accountability, mm. because if all I feel is shame, I drowned in it and it becomes the sum total of my experience. And now you are a million miles away. Yeah. And I can't, I can't change because all I'm going to do is, is block and I'm going to drown and I'm going to be by myself. So there's, so there's this need and I love the framing you're putting around it by framework then is the feedback then is the invitation. Like it's the gift that's like, okay, you just pointed out that my ceiling is like right here, but you're inviting the potential that the ceiling is higher. The space is bigger. There's so much more potential in me. So there's something so hopeful then about feedback that it's, it's a, it's an invitation Mm -hmm. forward. And what you're saying is for a man that right there is subverting the patriarchy because what you've been taught as a man is when you get feedback, you spin it, you stick it back on the other person. You yes, but you double down, you go rigid, you go stiff, you fight, you escalate, right? It's what we see at the macro level. We see that a lot in like the political world, that kind of like rigid, don't let anything stick to you. And so for you, especially as a man, getting feedback and letting yourself sit with the feedback and say, this feedback is showing me a potential place where I can expand and be even more myself. It's so powerful. And, but you're right. It does. It, it contradicts what you've been like in doing that you are quote unquote, less of a man because you've just let the feedback in. You've just softened in the face of feedback. So you are quote unquote, less of a man, even though you are becoming so much more the man that you are, the person that you are, the human that you are by taking the feedback in and by holding it as potentially something that can grow you. And of course, it is a massive way to validate your female partner, right? Because the moment she sees you sitting with it, letting it in, she feels seen, heard, understood, and validated, which is something that women for generations and generations have not felt and experienced. Um, so there's a way, and I, you know, men, I don't, I don't think when, when men do this, they certainly aren't intending to do it. But when a man blocks a woman's feedback, he puts her in a place where she then feels like every woman in her lineage that she has watched become an invisible woman. Mm-hmm. You know, she has, she then flashes on her grandma, you know, where every Christmas, Grandpa would sit down in his chair while grandma ran herself ragged. Or, you know, she flashes to all these images of the abused women in her family, the silenced women in her family, the marginalized. I mean, there's there's so much like energy there around the silence and marginalization of women that when a man 
doesn't let a woman's feedback in. He doesn't mean to do this, but he puts her right face to face with all of that pain and she gets panicky. Like, oh my God, I've just become the invisible woman. Interesting, because in the contrast to that would be the man staying in the rigidity of his inherited way of being and also experiencing a void to the pain that you would have to have to not validate someone's experience. Do you know what I mean? Like I would end up being more disassociated or maintaining disassociation from my actual, from empathizing with my partner's experience. So by not being able to receive it, I continue to block my partner and block myself. And, you know, then we created rules like marital right and things like that so that we still had intimacy where, of course, intimacy would die when there's not understanding, when there's not validation, when there's not safety, when there's not security. So like emotional safety would be completely eroded, yep. but then there would still be expectations relationally from an intimacy perspective that, gosh, when you look at the history, I know you talk about it in Taking Sexy Back and also in Loving Bravely, you talk about all of this stuff that we're talking about right now, but how those intimacy issues are relational and the history of even sex education and that like if a woman has something going on, you know, with perhaps her ability to be uh, turned on, that it was formally taught that there was something wrong with her rather than the relational circumstances, which is crazy to think like that wasn't taught in the media. That was like taught in the psychological you know, literature, which is crazy to think about, you know, thank God we've evolved in some capacities. That's right. Thank God we have evolved in that way. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Well then, I mean, I do, that's right. So if we're talking about a woman and a man getting stuck in that like emotional invalidation system, but there's still an expectation of physical intimacy, then of course, what she's going to do is enter into that space with her body, but not her soul and not her psychology. And so she's not going to experience pleasure and she's going to be building up that much more resentment and that much more of a sense of self-abandonment, right? That like, that I'm just kind of performing this role. Um, and it's, you know, it's really, I was talking today with a couple, they've had a long, long marriage and marriage number one for them was very much built on traditional notions. And if you could have written the script of what it is to be a good wife and a good mother, she would have ticked every single one of those boxes and it would have gotten like an A plus plus. And if you would have made a list of everything that makes for a good husband and a good father, he would have ticked everything. I mean, they perfected this. They were the perfect traditional couple, but they had every single side effect of that, right? Sexual malaise and um, a slow simmering rage inside of her that she wasn't, you know, she was accommodating and appeasing. And then a sense of like, as she started to step forward and say, this isn't working for me anymore, he felt absolutely bewildered because he didn't know, because in his mind, he was doing all the things right. And so I so admire the chance to help them build a marriage that is built on intimacy. But I tell you what, it's like, you know, a a marriage built on patriarchal notions of good women and good men is like a thick, meaty steak. You can like, you know, you can just sink your teeth into it. Like you get it. It's, it's solid. 
a marriage built on intimacy. It's like a bowl of jello. It's much harder to get, you know, to like sink into, right? Because intimacy is so fickle, so dynamic, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole different, um, like substance that requires a lot more nuance and a lot more thoughtfulness and give and take and conversation and tolerance for cycles of connection, disconnection, repair, connection, Mm. disconnection, repair, and like an appreciation for when we're synced up and a tolerance for when we aren't synced up. That's what I find in my own marriage, at least. And I still, you know, Todd and I are going to celebrate 23 years next month. And I know, I know I still can get a bit panicky when we are out of sync and I'll think, is this it? Is this the end? Are we going to make it through? You know, so I'm not saying it's at all easy to kind of ride the ebbs and flows of connection, disconnection, you know, but it's real, right? It's, it's real. We're not going to feel the same about each other each and every day because because the stuff inside of us feels different. Like how I relate, I mean, I know for sure for me, how I relate to myself on any given day shapes the space between Todd and I. If I'm self-critical, if my tape inside my head is about my not enoughness, I guarantee you I will be both, well, either more critical of Todd or more primed to hear his comments as critical of me. Mm. Like actually hearing them through that lens. Yeah, that makes sense. I know Kai and I had a opportunity uh, for conversation <laughs> last night. And, you know, I always think of uh, the Gottman's line uh, where they say that the relationship masters, they don't leave each other in pain, like they repair. And I always think of that when there's disconnection. I want to just be like, bye, you know, like create space. And she, uh, I think if you ask both of us, who's more likely to move towards to repair earlier, she would likely, I would say, be the person. And, you know, I, the same sort of thoughts go through my mind, like, oh, I want a distance and then the catastrophizing, the ruminating, but you know, we're almost, I think we're at almost seven years. And I guess I count the gap year because it was a lot of personal work done in that gap year. Uh, But in, in that, that there's a coming back towards, and I think of something that you, uh, and there's a deepening, like each challenge, each conflict, each fracture deepens the relationship. Like there's more trust when, when there's something going on between us, that's challenging. You're still going to be here when I get back. And I think of one thing that, uh, you wrote where you said that in a lifetime, we'll have many marriages and sometimes they'll be to the same person. And I love that because you're really speaking to the the space or the container of the relationship to not just have the the space for, but to actually to invite and be a safe space for the many iterations of us individually. And then what will that create within the relationship will then change if both people that compose the relationship are constantly transforming and it's such a beautiful piece of permission. So I appreciate you writing yes. that. Oh, I love that. It was, yeah, I think that's that's really important to carry. And it's, it is, I was thinking as you were saying that, that it's about our individual evolution, certainly, but it's also about like the evolution of the context. Like I'm flashing on um, 
uh, an opportunity that Todd and I had <laughs> last week, <laughs> opportunity. which is, you know, we are we are about to launch our oldest son um, off to college. And so n- none of the three of us, you know, he's never headed off to college and Todd and I have never launched anybody anywhere to anything, right? So all three <laughs> of us are feeling pretty fragile these days, you know? And so in some ways, the conflict that Todd and I had, the, the, the content was something about the launch, but the process, the choreography was is familiar. It's the choreography we've been doing since the 90s, you know, um, but it's just that the, the, the rapper is different. The, con- mm. the, the, the content is different. But I tell you what, in that conversation, in that conflict, the feedback I got from Todd taught me something about me. Like I was putting together pieces from my past to my present about my own relationship with criticism and sensitivity. And I came away and I chewed on it and it made more sense to me and it landed more deeply for me. And that to me is so encouraging, right? That we can be this far into a marriage, still learning, mm. I'm still learning about myself in the context of this relationship. And it's not just because I'm changing and he's changing, but because of our context continuing to change. And um, I think that's, I mean, I think that's what will keep me doing this work, you know, forever and ever is because it's just, I'm never, I'm never bored professionally. I'm never bored personally. <laughs> like it's just endlessly fascinating, right? When it makes you always need to get to know your partner as you need to get to know yourself. Like there's this constant adventure that's occurring if you allow the adventure to continue through, you know, as I was saying before, like that ability to sit in the space of invitation that feedback can provide and actually say, wait, is there any truth in what she's saying or he's saying or they're saying? And there likely is. And then If there is, then you've now just been shown something that you didn't see because your patterns prevented you from uh, actually witnessing it for a moment. You know, like if I constantly shut down, I never have to experience the result of my shutdown other than my own, obviously my own isolation, my own separation. But to actually finally hear like, hey, when things get hard, you often shut down and run. And if I just pause for a moment and I ask, is there truth in that? I mean, I have yet to meet a woman who told me something like that, who wasn't so right, you know? Mm-hmm. And yes, and I think this speaks, because I wanted to get back to that part of like, okay, the woman in this heteronormative example, which can be any gender construct, could be the opposite too. But if we're speaking in just the majority of relational dynamics that are heteronormative, that the woman shares an emotional thing, something that's going on for them, the man does not validate or hear it, and we end up in this state where the woman then resigns often, right? Like resigns, maybe goes to her friends and complains. And they stay in this same relational cycle where maybe the language people might have previously heard where the man is more avoidant or underfunctioning and the woman is more overfunctioning and anxiously attached. And no one's out of it. Like the, we, you know, we get asked a lot about that term and you used it a bit earlier of of self-abandonment, like that self-abandonment that doesn't allow. So I have to leave myself to stay in this relationship. Tell it just for uh, you listening, Dr. Selman, could you share, how would you sort of define self-abandonment and what could it look like in that relational dynamic on one or both sides? 
That's right. Okay. So in the, and I, I love that you are, because these are a lot of um, kind of buzzwords that we're hearing a lot, the anxious attachment. I mean, they're not buzzwords, anxious attachment styles is an entire body of scientific they're pretty buzzy. Literature. I like them. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, so in this example, um, when the conflict has been left unresolved because he has shut down and ended the conversation, she's at risk of feeling like she has self-abandoned, right? Because she has now taken the issue off the table because it it can't it can't be on the table. Right? It can't um, the issue can't be on the table because he unilaterally unilaterally has taken it off the table. And so now she is taking it off the table. And so it feels like by taking the issue off the table, she has just left a piece of herself, right? She has stepped away from her truth or a truth. And she's watching herself be smaller, dimmer, shrunken down version of herself in this relationship because she hasn't her issue hasn't been heard and the process, like the cycle has been left incomplete. And that's, I think what, you know, what's, what self-abandonment looks like on the more anxious side of the, um, of the, of the dance. And what I love about what you were saying about the kind of, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the dynamics of the more avoidant shut down person, especially when that person is male, we, we can have a lot of compassion for why he does it. But what I know for sure is when he takes the risk of doing it differently, of like taking that big, deep breath or taking that, you know, one hour of space to kind of regulate himself. And it may be that this conversation takes a while to happen because he may say, I'm too shut down and defensive to talk to you right now, but I love you and I don't want to leave you in pain. So I'm going to go for a run, take a shower, you know, whatever, and let's come back together and try again. In that, like that is such a profound shift, even, you know, just that much is a shift. And what the research, I think about the research of um, Les Greenberg, who's one of my a very like excellent, excellent teacher of um, kind of how therapy makes change for couples. He's one of the founders of emotion-focused therapy. And Les Greenberg, I learned from him that it's change, relational change happens, not just when he says, I'm going to go for a run and we're going to come back and try again, but change is cemented when she looks him in the eyes and says, thank you. That means a lot to me. That's when the change, like that's when the magic happens. It's like her recognition of like, I just saw you do something different. You didn't run. You didn't roll your eyes. You didn't, you are doing an intentional stepping away so that we can come back and try again. And just that shift in our dance, I see it. And I thank you for that. Mm. And it's in her like witnessing or acknowledgement, however that, you know, however that looks, however she says it or communicates, like I just saw you do something different. That's where the 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 change really gets cemented. Like that's when you really break the pattern. It's not just it's not just him trying out a different move, which is that that's that's a huge different move to say, I feel like I'm flooding, I'm gonna step away, but I'm gonna come back. That's huge. But it really isn't until she says, like, holy shit. I love you. Thank you. That the change, you know, kind of like takes, takes root. That's interesting. Cause as he then comes back and she maybe says, thank you for coming back. Thank you for 
you know, changing, doing it differently, that they are now in a conversation that they've never been in. You know, they're in a moment they've never been in. They're now in a new relationship. They've cemented trust, uh, the space that likely creates anxiety and uncertainty and a lack of safety for her uh, is now a sacred space that is actually safe for her or whoever it is to have. And for the person who generally needs space to breathe, they've taken this space, honored that moment. But actually, and I think this is the huge transition relationally, it's big, obviously, for people who are more anxiously attached to create a bit of space. But it's so transformative for the people who are more the distancer or the underfunctioner to actually regularly function, to do the adult thing, which comes back, which is not to create some sort of hierarchy, like you're being a little kid in the other one, but like the adult, the growing up, the integration is to say, I can turn towards hard things. I can face love and trust myself. And, you know, and man, that's where you start to see the evidence of the courageous work because then the relationship takes on a whole new dynamic. And I know in Mona Fishbane's work, she talks about the vulnerability cycles, like these arguments that constantly happen. And they're all these ways about different stuff, but the same thing. And I think we all can relate to that. And, you know, it's just like one person needs to change the dance, but you'd never think that the acknowledgement of the person changing the way they take the steps is actually what cements it. Because, you know, I think what sometimes happens is one person does a huge different dance and the other person is like you don't really mean it or you didn't do it right Mm -hmm. and they're like or it's about time why couldn't you have done this yeah oh as opposed to like hey the thing you wanted finally met the moment and now you don't actually want it and that maybe is that part where we get stuck in the old pattern and maybe not wanting is the wrong word or what happens is she says holy shit, I love you, thank you. And he feels like it's patronizing. I often bump up against oh, that shit. in therapy. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's like, like what the do you mommy mean, thank little, you? Yeah. yeah, it's like the mommy patting the little boy on the head. So I think sometimes for men to receive praise and affirmation can feel really like kind of bristly because it's like, are you telling me I'm a good boy? So I oftentimes will like work on refining. I'll be like, okay, so when she notices you've done something different, how how do you want your feedback? Like, is it like jazz hands? Is it like a high five? Is it a hug? Is it verbal? Like, how do you want? Because I really want her to be able to give you the feedback because my God, you deserve it. Because to change a pattern is to change an entire historical legacy. If you're a man doing it, it's to change an entire, you know, gender role socialization, but I want you to receive that. I want you to receive your kudos in a way that lands rather than, you know, makes you bristle. <laughs> so when sometimes I, we have to refine that part of it. And that's where, you know, we often don't take the moment to acknowledge how courageous that anyone in any dance, when you change it, how monumental that is, how transformative that is, because that doesn't just change yourself and the immediate relationship you're in, you now will be changing all the relationships you're in. You'll be modeling new behavior for everyone you're in relationship with. And that changes the world. You know, as they say, it's like change, want to change the world, change yourself. And you don't really, that sounds sort of trite, but when you actually put it into the context of what we're talking about, getting an understanding of yourself, your relational dance, 
how you show up, how they show up, how your wounds interact, how to acknowledge each other's wounds, but not, as you said earlier, also to hold each other's feet to the fire. Like saying, like, I love you enough to tell you that I need this from you. And you might never have done that before, but this relationship requires it. And I think because love matters to us so much and relationships do, that it's one of the main places that we're willing to dig a little deeper and go to the edge, you know? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Because the, because the stakes are so high. Because, you know, you and I often also get questions about like a fear of losing ourselves in relationship. And I often start my response by normalizing that we we don't lose ourselves in relationships, but you better believe we we change in relationships. We don't, if a, even if a relationship lasts a year, two years, we do not exit that relationship the way we were, the person we were when we mm-hmm. entered that relationship. And that can feel really mighty. Like I think we... There's this idea we have this kind of like core, I mean, I don't know if this is sort of a philosophical or existential question, but I don't believe that we have this sort of like core self. I think that's too siloed. I think it's too individualistic. I think we're constantly making and remaking ourselves, our our sense of self in the context of our relationships. Mona Fishbane, we were mentioning before, has a beautiful article about the relational self, right? That there is no, this idea of like, a separate self is a very, I think it's a very sort of patriarchal, white, masculine, individualistic idea of sort of like the the cowboy, no, you know, the horse and the cowboy and the sort of like independent, like sort of high priority and independence. And I think what neurobiology has shown us and what whatever, psychology, spirituality, pick your realm, has shown us is that we're so exquisitely relational that of course, when we fall in love, it feels a bit like our whole self is shaken up a bit. And so we have to be able to tolerate that. It's not a loss of self. Hopefully it ends up being an expansion of self. Mm. But for sure, for sure, we aren't when we enter relationship, we aren't the same self we were when we were single, right? That self has to expand because part of the self is becoming a we and joining, like creating this relational system. And so that can be really confronting and destabilizing, but it doesn't have to be a loss. And the idea that it's a loss, I suppose, is because we haven't grown into the space that's been given, you know, which is not to minimize the loss we experience when a relationship ends, you know, but I often think about that, you know, when someone's like, I was left devastated or they took a piece of me when they left. I, I've really started to think about and ask people like, what did you give them that they could take? What's in the space of that, that devastation? Because what I've learned is it's just more that's undiscovered to me. Like when my relationships completed me, Then when I lost someone, I felt like a part of me left. But I think when you have a good sense of yourself, when a relationship ends, you still have yourself. You're still experiencing the severing of attachment and the dreams that that you had, that you believe are no longer going to happen, even though really you you can change the person that's within the story. And, you know, I think we get often attached to how relationships are supposed to look, how the story is supposed to look. 
And we're socialized to do that. I mean, Disney hasn't really helped us in any way because it's made it sound like if you're a woman, you're often in distress. And then this guy comes along and just, he has, first off, he just gets you. Excuse me. Which, <laughs> let's be honest, is the worst setup ever. He just gets you. And if he, you know, it's love if he just gets you versus like, ah, uh, that seems like an unfair expectation, you know? Might he get a little bit of time to learn you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Mm. Right. Like, where, there... That movie's too long. Okay. That's right. <laughs> That's... It's too boring. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I love this exploration of where self-abandonment occurs in relationship and then where self-reclamation occurs, which is the ownership over our own stuff. Like, you know, what is my responsibility? What's your responsibility? And can we take responsibility for each other's own things and create a space, take responsibility for creating a space that is welcoming and safe for the navigation of these things that maybe have never been navigated? And that be where, because I, when I think of self-abandonment and you talked in that example about, let's say the the woman now not sharing any emotional thing, like holding on to it and resigning to herself that the space that is the relationship in order to not be self-abandoning, it has to learn how to hold both people's authentic expressions and experience and well, gosh, in order to do that, I have to learn to get comfortable with myself in so many ways. I have to be willing to share that courageous thing. And I also have to be willing for that courageous version of me to that the relationship might not be able to hold that version of me. And that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do. I do. And it's, I think that when it is, um, I mean, we're really, we're using a, a, gen, a strong gender paradigm today, which I think is, I think sometimes it's okay to go there and do that. I think what's, what can be challenging is when, if she's really working on sharing, this is, these are my thoughts. These are my feelings. This is the origin story of that. Here's who I was as a little girl in my family. If she's working on, on that sort of self-reclamation and saying that, that loving you means asking you to witness my rough edges, my painful stories, my tender bits. In doing so, I really want him to be able to just like hold it, like not feel like he has to fix it or make it different, mm. but just hold it. And I think that, that, you know, I think this is why John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus was such a wildly successful book yeah, because it was about that urge to fix or make different. And uh, I think that can oftentimes be a growing edge. I think for both, you know, for people of any gender to just kind of sit with a partner and hold it and hear it and not feel like there's anything to do with it, um, which can be unsettling, right? Like it can often be like, okay, so then what? So now what? So what happens different? And how do we fix this? And and that word fixing, I think, gets us into so much trouble in relationship. Because there are, you know, there are some things that we can like refine or change or stop doing. But a lot of it is is about increasing our capacity to tolerate 
how complicated relationship dynamics are. And some things are not going to be fixed, but they're going to be navigated with more ease or held with more compassion or held with more gentleness. But a lot of this stuff isn't isn't fixable. It just is when you and I get into a conversation like this, I'm at risk of catastrophizing. I'm at risk of moving into shame. You know, I'm at risk of taking too much responsibility for this dynamic. Here we go again. You know, how can I do it differently? But it's, I don't think we get to a place where this, a lot of the stuff is fixed. And I think the couples get themselves into trouble by expecting things to be fixed or expecting that there's going to be a time where there just aren't ruffles or aren't opportunities or aren't conflicts. Yeah, that an absence of conflict means the real, we finally did it. We have no conflict yep. as opposed to conflict, how it's managed being the evolution. Like the transformation is how you manage conflict. And that conflict is actually beautiful evidence of two people and their stories coming together in a certain way and, and learning how to dance together side by side and not lose each other's individual stories as you create one together. And, you know, I think about that fixing thing and how much, you know, well, if I fix it, then I won't be inadequate anymore. And then you won't have any more complaints and then I'm good. And yeah, I remember my dad saying to me once when I was like 20 something too early, he said it too late. I wish I had learned it at 18, but he was like, well, why don't you just ask her if you want to listen, if she wants you to listen or fix it? And I was like, oh man, why don't you tell me that? Like when I was 18, do you know how many conversations you could have saved me? <laughs> and, uh, but it was at the perfect time, you know, and I've realized since then, sometimes I forget to do it though, you know, and then I get into okay. fixy fix mode and Kai's like, uh, and I'm like, oh, do you want me to listen or help? And she's like, listen. Yeah. And it's often listen when I think it's help, you know? Yeah. So it shows you how uh, how my barometer of needs for Mark are, are a little <laughs> off and how important that question is, which is really a question um, related to how can uh, our interaction best move her forward, me forward, et cetera. That's right. Well, I, yeah, I think that it oftentimes, I think that that the reason that question is so damn powerful is I think oftentimes she may not know, like she may not know, or the person who's upset may not know. And it may not be until the question is asked, like the question is an invitation, right? If you were to ask me that question, you are asking me to slow down, to pause and check in with myself rather than just oftentimes if I'm downloading and I'm just like swirling in my emotions and I'm in my thoughts and my um, perspective by saying, do you want, um, do you want advice? Do you want to be heard? It's in that by you asking the question, it's a very grounding question, a very clarifying question. And it's not, it doesn't show any, I think sometimes we get into this idea, like you should know me well enough to know what I need. And that's, we're not <laughs> heading down that uh, road I'd fuck at that all. One up a lot then, yeah. Nope, 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 nope. It is in you, the question is so profoundly compassionate, right? Like I see you're swirling. I see you're in pain. I want to be helpful. I do not have a crystal ball to know what you want. So I will ask you this or this. And there may be a third option that I haven't even thought of. I'm open to hearing that. But <laughs> my thought, you know, I'm like, 
I've got some advice. If you want advice, I've got two really great ears if you want more listening. And that question is so grounding to me because it is, I then need to take a, take a breath, take a pause, check in, scan myself and take responsibility, right? For what I want and need. So often I feel like when I'm working with a couple, especially if it's a straight couple, she will say, but this is just my feelings. I'm just expressing my feelings. And so I think there is a time, like there is a way that a question about, okay, so, but what do you, like, where do you want to go with it? Is it just, I mean, sometimes it is just, I need to get this off my chest, but sometimes we may need to do some refining around like what, where do you, how do you want this conversation to go? Mm. Like what's your where need you want below it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Solomon, I could jam with you all day and I'm sure people could listen to you jam all day. Uh, we do have exciting news because you and I are collabing, 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 whatever, collaborating, and <laughs> we're launching. You have the Loving Bravely uh, book club coming up, slash course, slash book club. So let's clarify that a little more in that with Create the Love, you're doing Loving Bravely book club, which is the opportunity. We've done this one before and it was a smashing hit. So it's an opportunity, whether people buy the book or not, but it is encouraged to buy the book and you lead them through all the lessons from the book and have two live calls and maybe let people a little window into what they might learn. Absolutely. You know, as we were saying before, Loving Bravely is is basically a guided journey into yourself, understanding who you are in the context of your intimate relationships. You know, as somebody who has spent decades as a professor and a couples therapist, the, it, it's a it's a journey. There are exercises along the way and practices, research and integration of research with story. I love the book. It's been a really special part of um, of my life for the last few years. And I love working on the book with you. So I love that Create the Love is now going to host the Loving Bravely Book Club. And it's going to be, as you said, it's self-guided. And you will have a chance along the way to be supported um, by me with videos and we will engage. Um, the, your, the platform is beautiful. It is a beautiful platform that Create the Love is hosting with um, comment sections and chances to engage and create community around each and every one of these lessons. And then we will do two live calls and um, and break it down further and get really specific about, you know, I, what I want is for people to have language and frameworks and then really, really seamless integration into their own lives. Like that is my, that is my happy place when somebody kind of learns something and then seamlessly transitions it to, okay, here's how it looks in my life. Um, so we talk about name, connect, choose. We name a dynamic, we connect our emotions to it, and then we figure out how do I choose something different? What's the shift that I want and need to make in the service of my own health and the health of my relationships? Well, let me be very clear. Having read this book more than once, I can tell you it is an if you are curious about improving your relational awareness and your relationships and your life, it is an essential read. It is a must, must read. It's in my top books to read in your lifetime, top books to read if you just want to dramatically change your relationship. So if that relates to you, 
which I'm guessing it does because you listen to this podcast, you can go to createthelove.com slash lovingbravely and register. We also have a coupon for you to save 50 bucks and that is podcast bravely. I like that coupon. It's very good. <laughs> podcast bravely, love bravely. Check out the course, sign up for the book club. It's a good summertime activity. Dr. Salman, I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge. And I can't wait for the book club. I love you too. Right back at you. And I will collab with you anytime, anywhere on any of the things. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.